Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President of Professional and Educational Development at the University of Louisville's Health Sciences Center. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacey Sainer, Director of HSC Professional and Educational Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Health Professions Education. Once a week, we'll come together and use this podcast to bring professional and educational development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. Welcome to Faculty Feed. Today we're talking again with Dr. John Chenault, who's an associate professor and director of anti-racism initiatives at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. John, welcome. Thank you, good morning. Glad to have you back. So we're going to be talking today about the crisis in biomedical research and publications. And if you're a faculty thinking about listening to this episode, this is going to affect your work. You're either producing scholarship or you're consulting the the published literature. So this is going to be something important to talk about. John, your background is as a former medical librarian here at Kornhauser Health Sciences Library. Would you talk to us briefly just about what your work was like as a medical librarian? So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about medical librarianship because uh, I don't think people really understand how integral medical librarians are to the research process, how essential they are to the research process. So in my particular role as a research librarian, I uh, not only was responsible for doing literature searches across the health sciences campus, across every sector, to help faculty, staff, and students find evidence-based information on whatever topic, but I also train people in how to search those databases, how to, do, how to do research, how to manage the citations. So librarians do a variety of things, and let's be clear, the library is the nexus of information and technology. Librarians are critical to that process, to the entire process. Uh, in my case, for years, I served as a librarian for Institutional Animal Care and Use, IACUC Committee. So in that role, I was involved in bench research. I was, I was basically participating in uh, grant applications to NIH to conduct various studies using animal subjects, uh, grant modifications if something changed in the course of the funding that had to be reported out, and also uh, renewals. Of, these, of the funding. And in that role, I was responsible for doing a couple of things. One, trying to ensure that the researchers found and used alternative methods when pain was involved in terms of the research subject, and also that they properly euthanized them subsequent to the research if necessary. Uh, but also equally important was avoiding duplication of studies. So NIH certainly does not want to fund multiple studies that are actually searching the same right. you know, phenomenon or doing the same experimentation. Uh, those, are, um, ex those are extremely important in terms of getting funding and keeping funding. So I, I spent um, maybe more than 10 years working in that capacity as well. You really had to know an area of literature very in depth to be able to find duplicate you know, uh, an investigator is planning a study, you have to be able to look look everywhere, find find any article that's published on a topic. 
So you're really integral in that process. Well, so we were going to talk today about the crisis in biomedical research and the resulting publications. Could you talk a little bit about the issues that are of major concern? So there's an acronym, FFP, fabrication, falsification, and plagiarism. And for some years, those have been adequate to describe uh, the problems that we have. Fabrication, falsification, and plagiarism, a huge problem. It has now been joined by post-production. So even after articles have been sent to press, there are still instances where they are being manipulated for fraudulent purposes. Believe it or not, some people actually hack into journal databases and place their names on articles that are in press <laughs> that they had nothing to do with. But think about it, there are many, many lab laboratory studies that have dozens of contributors. And certainly, um, who bets every single, if there are 30 you author, authors, you yeah. cannot possibly yeah. bet every single one. So these people are actually slipping into the databases, putting their names in uh, pre-press. Wow. Another example of post-production fraud is buying, buying authorship. So you can pay unscrupulous authors to allow your name to be inserted in the publication's masthead or you know, author's list without uh, having contributed anything, nothing, other than the thousands of dollars you pay for that listing. So post-production has now emerged as one of the most uh, uh, major, one of the major problems, and that also involves ginning up the impact factors by ginning up the, the citations for an article. So unfortunately, some journal editors are in collusion with each other. Mm. And they'll call their friend and they'll say, listen, have your people cite our articles and gin up our, state, our stats and we'll do the same. Sometimes this goes on below the surface of the editors and it's done between authors. So they'll say the same thing. I'm gonna cite you till the cows come home and I'm gonna have everybody cite you. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit more as we go through about journal impact factors and, and actually what they do and don't do. But these are the emerging problems and they're all driven by digitization and the use of metrics. We believe in science and biomedicine that data is everything. Data drives everything. But data can be manipulated and that is what we're seeing happening on a massive scale. John, that, that's astounding to hear that, that this post-production insertion of names or buying your way into a publication. Uh, is it true that when you talk about the falsification, one of, one of your Fs in your acronym, that a significant portion of what is published has been falsified? It has for a number of reasons. Sometimes um, uh, what people construe as to be a standard practice, and that has to do with somebody writing the article. Uh, so for example, uh, your hypothesis is that if you do this experiment, A is going to find B. Your experiment should lead to result B. But you actually conduct the experiment 
and it leads to result C, something completely unpredictable. You hadn't you know, had any forecasting that that would be the, uh, the occurrence. So what do people do? Do they report that error on their part, the mistaken assumptions? No. What they generally do is rewrite it, and they leave out. They omit that. This happens constantly. Any, you know, let me, let me say this. Researchers are, are, are confronted with a myriad of problems and issues and challenges, and many of them do their due diligence to try to overcome them. But you can't report all that out in an article. An article is a story, and that's what we tend to forget. It is storytelling. And so what authors tend to do is create a storyline and a story arc that just simply conveys what they want their readers to understand about the process. Not what really happened, but how they want it to be perceived as happening. So there's that going on as well. So there's that sort of inadvertent, kind of commonly overlooked process. And there's the deliberate falsification. So with deliberate falsification, a lot of data cooking and beautification is going on. So you know you have um, a study again where you say, okay, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna try to make this determination, and I have to make sure that my data falls within the uh, p value below 0 0.05 p value to be statistically relevant. So how do we get there? And first of all, that's a, 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 a misnomer that that figure means what people think it means, uh, that it is actually a baseline that has some true statistical value. But, um, but what people will do to achieve it, um, aside from outright fabrication, is simply if they're conducting the study and they have enough results in to be below 0.05, they'll stop. So we don't really know <laughs> what they will find in the long run, but they'll stop right there. Or they'll look at the data and they'll trim it. So they'll leave out, uh, say for example, they're dealing with human subjects. Those who are, they will consider them to be outliers. Those, who's my, those who might be the most ill, we'll leave those out. So we don't have to count them towards, you know, in our analysis. So there are these things that are going on constantly. The other thing is simply manufacturing studies, subjects, findings. So this, is, this would be where an investigator knows they're doing this. It, it's not a, well, maybe we shouldn't include this outlier for may, this justifiable reason. This is, somebody knows exactly what they're doing. This is deliberate. To, this, this is deliberate. out and out fraud. Yes. That's the other app. It's, the, it's out <laughs> and out fraud. Yeah. So John, what you've described so far is that the, the, some journals, the editors of some journals, the whole publication world is a problem and the investigators sometimes by maybe just a mistake or a you know I'm a look the other way kind of approach to this or out and out fraud there's disease now at at least two levels in the process yes absolutely wow it's uh, the, the process is um, in critical it should be in the ICU <laughs> yeah. it's, and in fact, some, some researchers of this, uh, of this problem have, uh, have satirized it so that they talk about other researchers who have Nobelitis. They're sick by the desire to get a Nobel Prize and they'll do anything to get it. There's impactitis where I have to gin up my impact uh, so that I can get promoted, so I can get tenure, so I can get this funding that I need. Yeah. Th these things are fueling competition in particular is fueling this fraud and fabrication. In the past, 
the U.S. only competed with uh, scholars in England, Germany, maybe some in France. It's a global phenomenon now. And the big player in the game is China. China probably has surpassed the U.S. in terms of quantity of output. China actually has three biomedical databases in Chinese that are, each one is larger than PubMed. And we have no idea, unless you speak Mandarin, you, we have no idea what's in them. But they're churning out research hand over foot. And so this puts pressure across the world, across the globe, uh, to compete. If I'm thinking, it, it, maybe if I'm not involved in this, uh, in generating research like this, I would think, well, you know, these are people that are being unethical or these are errors that are happening. What are real world consequences of these issues? They are immense. So let's talk about laboratories. So our foundation to all of our research is going to be coming out of uh, bench science, bench you know, laboratory work, which is preclinical work. So we're talking about animal studies, looking at cells, molecules, DNA, et cetera, et cetera. If things are wrong at the ground level, it only gets worse as you move through the process to clinical trials, to publication, post-publication, and then ultimately, in many instances, to pharmaceutical development and production. So we're putting drugs on the market that are based on these faulty and flawed studies. So when it comes to um, uh, library fraud, um, Leonard Freeman, who is the founder of the Global Biological Standards Institute, estimate 20% of studies have untrustworthy designs, so they're flawed from conception. 25% use dubious ingredients. Uh, that means contaminated cells or antibodies, and that is a massive problem. You know, HeLa cells right. uh, are, are cervical cancer cells in origin. They're everywhere. They're used in vaccines. They can actually pollute other cell lines. So imagine you're creating a vaccine, and you purchase a cell line thinking it's coming from one source, and it's actually contaminated with cervical cancer, cells of cervical cancer origin, not saying that there's live cancer there, but still, you have not received what you're expecting and you're basing all of your, your work on that. 8% is due to poor lab technique. And let me say that bench science is tough. Mm -hmm. I mean, the standards of, 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 of uh, sanitation, you know, keeping things clean and pure and all that, and so many minor things can offset your, your, your studies protocols. The next category is Data analysis. Freeman estimated that 18% of data analysis was, mis was mishandled. Uh, so uh, a lot of times researchers don't even correctly interpret their own findings. When you think about like, well, what are the safeguards? Like, so can anyone just put anything out there? The argument would be like, well, it's going to go through peer review. And I, I am a reviewer. I review for a lot of, uh, a lot of journals in the field, and it's an important component um, but a lot of what the reviewer is doing is looking at um, claims that are made in the article. But you never see that raw data as a reviewer. Right. You, I mean, and it would be impossible, mm -hmm. even if you did, this is a, almost exclusively unpaid service <laughs> to a journal, a journal that a faculty member is doing. Right. But, no one would ever be a peer reviewer if right. you took oh. that amount of effort. No, no way. So it, there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of trust in the, 
uh, expertise of the person who's submitting the article, but also a lot of trust in the um, integrity of the person that is right. submitting the the investigators that are on that article beyond any of the you know other broader like did this person actually do the the work on the article like no you are assuming that that data exists and that the analysis was done correctly and the person knows what they're doing there's a lot of uh, faith that's placed in and, and the implications are it's not just oh well you know stuff happens the implications that whatever someone decided that they found whether intentionally falsifying it or accidentally having it contaminated in some way if clinical trials are then developed and drugs then developed as a result of these findings that when you describe that this magnifies the impact of whatever somebody intentionally did or accidentally yeah. did to that's, falsify those results that's that's billions of dollars now in potential impact or maybe even danger to somebody who you know, I mean, takes a drug that they didn't need. It sounds exactly like biological magnification, you know, when yes. as you know, DDT and that sort of thing, and how it became such a huge issue because of biological magnification, and it's just immense. So, it, what you describe the the statistics around this? Yeah, let from, me from say, Freeman, let me say, twenty percent of everything is out of whack for one reason or another, even from the most reputable journals. Oh, it's more is than twenty percent. It's more than 50%. Wow. So Leonard Freeman, again, the founder of Global Biological Standards Institute, estimates untrustworthy papers cost approximately $28 billion per year. Wow. When we talk about peer review in reference to this, and, and uh, Laura laid it out clearly, uh, people are volunteers. I peer, review, I peer reviewed. And um, there, there's no remuneration for it other than you're helping the profession, you're advancing the research. Uh, many, some people do it because it's a way of networking as well and it helps with uh, promotion and tenure to, to add that to your CV that you've done that. So that's all good and well. The problem is the system is broken. The stuff is coming at us too fast and there's this drive to get things done almost overnight and because of digitization, things can be published instantly. You know, you can receive the manuscript today and it can go up tomorrow on the, on, in the, journal's, uh, on the journal's website. So um, that is causing tremendous problems, uh, this breakdown of the system, uh, because there's so much, it's so complicated. The, the, uh, let, let's put it this way, it's so complicated. Journal editors often will ask the author of an article to recommend reviewers. It's, oh <laughs> there, there are research niches that are so specialized, there are only you know, yeah. a couple of dozen people who know that. So you, as a journal editor, you may not know the intricacies of that topic. And, and so you have no crew of people you can call on. So you can turn to, the, to the, uh, re the writer and say, can you recommend some people? That's where problems come in. Ooh. What we've seen in recent years is over 600 instances where the author wrote their own reviews. Oh, of course. Yes, why not? It can be a sterling, glowing <laughs> recommendation for publication if you write it yourself. Yeah. Oh yeah, this is beautifully done. So over 600 have been identified. That does not even account for how many may be out there. Um, so the system is terribly broken and the consequences are um, fabrication, fraudulence, uh, plagiarism, 
sneaks under the uh, over the threshold under the door right. frame. however it gets in it gets in there and that's why again it's over 50 percent of what's published is is faulty in some way or other you have mentioned the term impact factor and so i was hoping you could maybe describe what that is and how does that impact um this issue of uh what, what we've been talking about journal impact factors they are one of the key causes of what we can call metric misconduct been around since the 70s they were immediately criticized when they were introduced but in the last 15 years or so it's become a commercially marketed product by what was Thompson Router Reuters and is now Clarivate Corporation. And so there's a database citation index where you go and you look and you can see what the journal impact factors are. And there's a formula for determining what those factors are. How long have you been in publishing? How many articles do you publish every year? Uh, how, what's the shelf life of those articles? How long are they cited after publication? There's this whole formula. It sounds really impressive, right? It's not. These things are easily manipulated and they are really meaningless in the long run unless you're selling your journal as some high-ranked thing or other, right? So, let's be clear. What this has done, has, it has added impact or perish to publish or perish. So people are trying to get published in those high impact journals, which means they'll do anything in some cases, those unscrupulous ones, to gin up their research, to make it appear sexy, exciting, groundbreaking, all those things they want to, the editors to perceive in order to get in there, right? Particularly in the top journals. Um, so what we see happening is that the only value in these metrics, really, has been career building and institution building on that level. Uh, it does not translate into any meaningful qualitative analysis of those journals. So, John, we always ask uh, our guests to suggest something that our listeners can do after they've heard this podcast. So, what would you suggest they do in relation to this crisis in biomedical research and publication? Well, first thing I would suggest is that they take time to do their due diligence in looking very, very closely at articles and vetting those articles. And I gave some examples in terms of looking at the sample size, looking at whether these were blinded studies, et cetera. And then using, um, and then extending that analysis to places like Retraction Watch or looking in pub review. Uh, so we cannot avoid uh, the necessity of taking those e extra steps. We should not simply assume because something is in print that is evidence-based, it's valid, it's, uh, it's efficacious even. So let me be clear, 30,000 medical journals exist. Uh, they publish more than 1.8 articles every year. PubMed, in fact, and, and those numbers grow 7 8% every year, consistently for the last decade or so. Uh, PubMed, in fact, currently receives more than 1 million of those articles per year. That's about two a minute. Wow. There is no way possible to keep up with what's going on. So we are overwhelmed. We have information overload. It cannot be vetted. Let me be clear, the long-term implications for for our, our top level gold standard of research, which are meta-analyses. 
the implications of this are immense because meta-analyses will look at everything published on a topic and they focus on the statistical significance of mm -hmm. their findings and then they collate that information and then make a, a recommendation. If this is efficacious, it's not. What if 50% of the articles that are in the meta-analysis can't be trusted? Yeah. Then what does that say about our gold standard of research? So we have to stop, slow down. This, we should not be in a drag race to, to rush these things through, to rush our analysis, to rush our acceptance. We have to stop and take time to do our due diligence. Well, John, this is a really important topic and it, it's sobering. And, uh, I really appreciate you coming to talk with us today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Join us next time on Faculty Feed as we talk with the first two graduates of the master's degree in health professions education at the University of Louisville. Doctors Russ Farmer and Will Abshire will share with you the impact that this training has had on how they teach learners at the School of Medicine and the School of Dentistry. If you want to up your game or enhance your skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be. As together, we strive to make the University of Louisville a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to discover and connect. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and additional resources about today's episode. And feel free to contact us at factfeed at louisville.edu. That's F-A-C-F-E-E-D at louisville.edu. Join us next time for more and come hungry.